We're continuing in this series on faith in a new world, and you know, some people are uh, more and more people are coming back and joining us in person here and um, instead of online. And uh, every single one that's come back has said, Pastor Matt, you look much more handsome in person than online. So that's awesome. Uh, it's great. Um, they didn't say, like, whether it's really handsome, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, one of the things that we, we should be picking up on, we talked about how, you know, this is about being faithful in all situations. But the other thing I hope that you're seeing is that, that this is not a fairy tale. This isn't like, oh, they all went back to Jerusalem and they lived happily ever after. That this is, has taken much time, much effort, much prayer, They've, they've been there at this point when we start picking up the story today. They are, they'll have been there for almost a century. Almost a century. It's, it's not this, A, we're going to come back and everything will be easy. No. It's going to take work. And we think about the work as the walls. You know, we think like, oh, the temple, okay, it's rebuilt. Oh, they need walls. But we're also seeing that there's another problem. The problem is, is that people just didn't come back and then we're just like, all right, God, got the message. You know, you destroyed, you know, allowed the Babylonians to destroy our, you know, entire civilization. We got it. We're back. We're on board. Covenant. No, no way we'll waver again. And we see that they waver pretty fast. We see that they have, you know, the, the, the brokenness of not being a whole and healthy community society. And that's going to take work. And, you know, that's what I think happens sometimes when, you know, among us even in modern times. You know, we, we think that... Um, that just because God is saying this is the plan and that we believe God has called us to fulfill the plan, that, that some, somehow it'll be easy. Um, there was this song that came out in the 80s um, that had the line, we don't need no education. I didn't, you know, it's grammatically incorrect, but, you know, that, I think that was part of the point. Um, those of you who are now playing the song back in your head, um, you know, you remember. Um, but there are a lot of people who agree with this sentiment. They don't need no education. We don't need no training. In fact, this might shock you, but when I was at the seminary, um, there were a lot of students there that did not think they needed an education. You might go, well, what were they there for? They were there because they wanted a degree. But they didn't think they needed an education. I had one student, and this wasn't even at the master's level, this was like an <clears throat> undergraduate guy. You know, he'd, he, he came to our school, you know, he's probably about 20. He's in his first year, and, and in the kind of middle of that first year, he, he says, I want to come talk to you, and he, he comes to my office, and he says, um, 
You know, a, a church offered me a pastor to be pastor of their church. Sh- should I take it? And I'm like, well, I said, what if instead of seminary, this was actually medical school? And let's say you hadn't even gotten into medical school yet. You were still working on your pre-med. And a hospital called and said, we want you to come be head of surgery. Would you go? And he goes, I get your point. Because what I was trying to tell him is, look, you're either saying being, being pastor of a church is so easy any idiot can do it, and I know some of you might actually think that, but I hope not, you know, not any idiot. It takes specific idiots like me. Um, but they might just think, oh, it's so easy. Or they just think it's not important enough. Yeah, I might mess it up, but it's not that important. And he knew, he knew that that's not something he wanted to say, but it is kind of what he was feeling. I remember, you know, when, even when I first went to seminary, I actually wanted to go there for, for education and a degree. But I was kind of torn because I was here in Hawaii and, you know, I was teaching at a Christian school. I was helping out at our church. Um, and I just felt like, can I leave? How can I leave? Look at all the things that I'm doing, all the people that I'm ministering to. How can I leave? And what really kind of made the difference for me was, was reading in the, in the catalog for the seminary, they had a professor's quote. And he said, he said if, if God told me I only have three years to live, I will spend two years training and one year serving because that one year with training will be vastly more effective than me out there trying to figure it out on my own for three years. It really drove home for me like how much I needed education, how much I needed training. And, and I think that's the problem we have sometimes, in, not just in the church, but you know, in life in general, but certainly in the church. We got people that are willing and wanting to help. They want to help. They, they see a need, they want to rush in and help. But they're not willing to get ready. Either because they don't feel like they need to. Ah, you know, I, I, I can do it. Or because they think like they just have to rush in and, and start helping right away. What we're going to learn today from Nehemiah is we need to know that we need to get ready. We need to prepare. We can't just see a need and try to meet a need. Yeah, there's, there's certain needs like that, for sure. Okay? If, if you see the house is on fire, you can't go like, hmm, ah, I'm going to go to firefighting school and then come back and put out that fire. No, the fire's going to be gone by then. There are certain situations that call for us to 
give whatever we have because it's an emergency, it's a crisis. But a lot of times we treat every situation that way. Every situation. And God is saying, no, I want you to get ready. Because if you'll get ready, I'll use you far more effectively. So here's Nehemiah. We we met him last week. And we learned that, that he's the, the cupbearer for the king. He's one of the king's most trusted advisors. That, you know, the king invested in the cupbearer. You know, he, he trusts this guy. You know, we think of him as just tasting his food and his wine, but really he's more than that. And Nehemiah had heard about the Jewish exiles and, and he, he's just burdened for them. He wants to help. But he doesn't just rush. But what he does do, he does a couple things. We see in chapter 1 how he, just, he was praying and weeping and fasting. But we know between chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's doing something else. He's making himself available. He's doing something I think is so important for us. It's kind of a a principle that I think we we, we need to, to understand. And that is this, don't ask God to help others unless you are willing to be part of the solution. Don't ask God to help others unless you are willing to be part of the solution. That's one of our, you know, things we like to do. We like to think like, I prayed, I've done my part. No, you've prayed, you've done part of your part. You don't know what your part is. You don't know what your part is, and you can't just restrict it to, I prayed. But there's a lot of people who, unfortunately, are using that prayer as though that now absolves me from, um, you know, in any way being involved in this situation. And that's not really it. Part of my prayer when I pray for people in need is, God, what can I do? How can I help? Give me opportunities open doors, give me the boldness to say, I, I want to know, I don't want to just pray. And you know what? A lot of times the answer is, God says, I, I got this. I got other people. But that's what we see what Nehemiah does. He doesn't just say, oh, these people are in need. Oh, God, I hope you help them somehow. I hope you find a way to do something for these people. No, we're going to see even more evidence in chapter 2 that Nehemiah is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Use me if you want. So we come to this text in chapter 2, and it says, in the month of Nisan, now, For us, if we don't really know the Jewish lunar calendar, 
we don't know the significance of that. Um, if you know the Jewish lunar calendar, then you know that three months have passed. So for the, you know, the Jewish reader, when they go in the month of Nisan, they're like, what? Three months? For us, it's like, Chislev, Nisan, what is that? I know what Nisan is, it's some kind of car, but Chislev, I'm not sure. But he says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. A lot of scholars think the way this is phrased is that there's some kind of like um, Persian festival going on. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Three months. We're not told why. Nehemiah is not told why. But three months pass. What's going on? Again, we're not told why, but we know what Nehemiah has been doing. He's been preparing. And preparing to help means waiting for God's time. Waiting for God's time. Waiting for God's time is not an excuse, by the way. It's not an excuse to do nothing. It's not an excuse not to be thinking and, and coming up with solutions. But it does mean waiting for God's time. That's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah doesn't just you know, hear about this from you know, Hanani and then, and then you know, pray and fast and then just rush over to the king and say, King, this is what I think should happen. He doesn't just pack his bags and take off. He waits. And again, our, 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 you know, our impatience that we sometimes don't think is, is as impatience, our impatience can often act as, you know, cause us to, to, to act you know, prematurely. Now understand, you know, there are people that just use waiting for God as a kind of a, like a way to procrastinate and blame God for it. And I'm waiting for God's time. What that means is, you know what, I haven't really thought about it and haven't gotten around to it. Um, not sure. But I'm going to make it sound holier and say, I'm waiting on God's time. Not, not talking about procrastination. It's not talking about not, you know, taking initiative. And we're going to see that with, with Nehemiah. That someone who is truly waiting for God's time is not simply doing nothing. In verse 4, he says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? Now, understand, 
Nehemiah, as the most trusted advisor, is also, if he's ever suspected of not being trustworthy, he can be killed in a second. Um, this is Artaxerxes, the king. We, we know, like, from not just Persian history, but certainly from Persian history, even if you were a trusted military commander or, um, or you know, other, like, people high up, high officials, if for whatever reason the king was displeased with you, you could be, you could be killed. When, when Xerxes is, is trying to cross over from Asia Minor to Europe and he's at the place that's called the Hellespont, you know, he, he, he's trying to do something no one's ever done before, and so he, he wants these, these bridges to be built. And so this bridge is built, and then all of a sudden this, this huge like storm comes, destroys the bridges. Well, Xerxes has all of the, all the engineers killed because they didn't make the bridge good enough. This isn't like, like, oh, you know, I'm going to ask the king something and the king is going to perfectly understand. Nehemiah knows that, that what he's about to do is, is risky. It's dangerous. The king could, could become suspicious, wonder about his motives. But he says, he's, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? Return. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So it's, it's kind of interesting, like, you know, Nehemiah is just kind of there acting like, you know, it's any other day. And, but it, you know, he looks kind of bummed. The king asks, and then Nehemiah kind of responds like, you know, my, my people are in trouble. I, I'd like to go. And it, it's, you know, it's kind of like, I know, I just thought of this. But as soon as the king says, okay, you can go, it's almost like Nehemiah had like a notebook in the back and he pulls it out and he goes, oh yeah, here's all the stuff I need. You know, I, here's, here's, you know, I need these letters written, you need to get this timber. He's, he's, what has he been doing for three months? He doesn't even know if God wants him to go. He doesn't know if the king 
wants him to go or will let him go. But he's preparing as though he's going to go. Some people would think, like, well, that's just a waste of time. You shouldn't start preparing until you know for sure. No. He's getting ready. He's assessing the situation. He's probably, you know, talked to other people who've been back to Jerusalem. He's probably consulted with, with, with some of the architects and engineers and people that are there. He's, he's looking, and, and, he's, and he's going to ask what he knows he, he can ask for. Preparing to help means being ready when God says move. Being ready when God says move. I remember there was a, um, one of our, I think it was the International Mission Board, has a little magazine they send out. And I remember years and years and years ago, this was probably 20-something years ago, and I still remember this, that they had, a, they had an ad in there, and it was an ad to like, you know, encourage people to, um, to, you know, to consider missions. And the line was something like, um, how can you say you're willing to go when all along you're preparing to stay? How can you say, God, here I am. If you want me, if you need me, send me, use me, but you're preparing for the opposite. I thought that was a pretty good line. They didn't cite Nehemiah, but that's the opposite, you know, of what Nehemiah is doing. He's not preparing to stay. He's preparing to go even before he knows he's going to go. When, even when Charlotte and I were, you know, when we, when we first got married, we, you know, we're, even before we got married, we are talking about buying a house. And we didn't know what God was going to do with our lives. We didn't know that He might call us away from here or to go to another you know, part of the island or to go to, you know, the mainland or anything. We didn't know. And so we were, we were you know, considering buying a, a house. And, and we knew that buying a house would mean that we're kind of digging in. Except, you know, as we talked about it, I, I was you know, thinking about it, talking with her about it, praying about it. And then I said, you know what? Here's the thing. If we really believe this is what, you know, God wants us to do, but we also know God reserves the right to call us away three months later, we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with buying a house today and selling it in three months. Because this house isn't going to lock us in to, you know, to this place, this island. It has to be what God wants. But I think so many times we, 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 we read about the Great Commission 
And, you know, we, we think about all the people that all over the world who, who don't just need to hear the gospel, they need people to go and live there with them and, and to teach them and to help them in so many ways. And, and we believe that that's what God has called the church to do, but we live our whole lives preparing not to do it. Again, I'm not saying God is telling you to sell your possessions and, you know, move to Thailand or Botswana. But I am saying, if you're waiting on the Lord, what are you doing to prepare to get ready when He calls? So I love Nehemiah's as just this kind of role model for us. We can look at him and we can see like he's not just thinking about today and he's not just thinking about what's for sure in the future. He's saying, I want to be ready. One of the pastors we had on the mainland, you know, he would say this from time to time. He would say the greatest disappointment in his life was that God didn't call him to missions. And that he, you know, felt it like for his whole ministry. And he had a, he had a you know, good church in, in Fort Worth. But as a young person, he, he, just, he just felt like he wanted to go. But it wasn't just wanting to go that was going to take him to, on mission. When God says move, you're going to be ready. You know, I've been talking about this, and those of you who get uh, the newsletter, by the way, commercial for the newsletter, if you're not getting the newsletter, let us know. It's easy. We can either send you one via the post office, or we can send you one via email. And it really keeps you up to date with the latest things that are going on. But in the newsletter, and also sometimes in sermons, I've been saying this, I don't know. I don't know what God is going to do next. I don't know what He has for our church. Oh, I know a lot of things we're doing. We're going to keep doing them. But if we believe that God has, has a purpose for us, then we need to get ready. We, we need to not just wait until it happens and make it up as we go. And so we need to prepare. And part of that has always been the same thing that we've talked about. We prepare by, by you know, knowing God's Word, studying God's Word, living God's Word together, being a strong community of faith, having a spirit of of humility and reconciliation, being a continuous display of God's eternal, unconditional love. Even if that's all we did for the next 30 years, that would consume us. That would be so much, and that would be so awesome if we just did that. You see, when you prepare to do what God has for you, it's not wasted. It's not wasted. Even if God says, you're not going to be the one. I've got somebody else to do it. Your preparation isn't wasted. 
Because God's going to say, I got somebody else to do that, but I need you to do something else. Just like, you know, the pastor who wanted to go on missions. He, he, God said, no, you're not the guy to go overseas. But I, I, I have you at this place. I have you in this church with these people. Serve me there. So are we getting ready? And as Christians, we're always in this, this constant thing of doing what's right here before us and getting ready for whatever crazy idea God has next. And to me, that's, that's fun. It's exciting. I, I, there's a part of me, and I would say it's the old man part of me, but I've been this way since I was a kid, that I like things to be a certain way, and then let's not change them ever. If I could, I would wear blue jeans and t-shirts every day because I like them, they're comfortable, and I would never change them. But there's another part of me that's like, what's the next adventure? We can't go on adventures if we're trying so hard to keep everything exactly as it is. So as a Christian, we're, we're being faithful in what's right before us. But we're always getting ready for the crazy thing God is going to do next. The king grants his, his, his request. It's great. It's awesome. Nehemiah is ready now to, to go into action. And so it says in verse 9, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. That phrase, province beyond the river, some of your Bibles translates it as the trans-Euphrates. So it's talking about the land between the Euphrates and the Mediterranean Sea. And he says, and he gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This has nothing to do with the text, but whenever I read the name Sanballat, I think he's Filipino, and I'm not sure why. It just sounds Filipino. But Sanballat, Tobiah, they hear... Sambalat's a governor. He actually gets the letter from the king. And he ain't happy. See, here's Nehemiah again going to this place. He's prayed about it. You know, he's prepared. But he knew opposition would come. And so he even prepared for the opposition. And that's something we need to know. You know, he, when, when, when you go and try to fix what's broken or fix the people who are broken, you have to understand, even though it's, it's exactly what's needed, somebody's going to oppose you. Somebody's not going to be happy. 
You know, we see this even in the New Testament. Jesus healing people. The apostles healing people. And instead of everybody celebrating, you know, some people are upset by it. Some people are upset because they see this as a demonstration of power that they don't have, and so they're jealous. And they're upset. They realize, like, you know, this kind of gives this Jesus guy a little more authority because he's doing stuff we can't do. And we also find times in the New Testament where people are upset because they had kind of built their livelihood, they had built their own power around having broken people. If, if, if you've kind of built your livelihood around having broken people and somebody comes in and fixes them all, what are you going to do now? And so there were some that were opposed because of that. Sanballat and Tobiah, they're, they're, we're, we're, not, um, you know, we're, we're not sure about you know, all the other leaders, but you can pr- probably guess that this is representative. Representative of the governors of, the, of, the, of that area. And not only of the governors, of other people, that, especially people who are in power. Because when you're in power, the last thing you want is for things to change. When you feel comfortable, when you feel like you have what you need, and, and you, know, you don't want to risk it by changing things. Every time something changes, you risk losing the thing that you have. And so they see Nehemiah coming and they, they, they read the letter and they see why he's there and they know Nehemiah is about to change everything. It's not just a wall. He's going to change everything. And so again, helping God, following God, doing His will, going and seeing people who are hurting and, and you know, trying to bring you know, healing to them. It's, again, it's not this fairy tale. It's not like, oh, everybody's celebrating. Oh, welcome. Please come and help us. It'll be hard. There will be opposition. Well, Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me. I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. 
What is Nehemiah doing here? Well, he's on the field now. He's on the field. He's, he's heard reports. He's gotten ready. But now he goes and he wants to see it firsthand. Preparing to help means that we assess what must be done. He doesn't just say, let's get to work. Let's go, guys. No, he's, he's, he goes and he inspects. Why is he doing that? Well, several reasons, I think. One is, I think he's like counting the cost. He's actually looking and seeing like, you know, what, what is this going to take? What kind of manpower is this going to take? You know, what kind of resources is this going to take? I think the other thing he's doing is, is, he's, is he's trying to like kind of think about, okay, what order should we do these things in? And if you've ever done any kind of construction work and things like that, the order really matters. You know those um, papers they put into to, um, things you buy from the store um, that, you know, and sadly a lot of men disregard? They're called instructions, uh, assembly instructions. I used to not read them, and then I, I started reading them more because I would, have, I would be putting something together just by what made sense to me and realized I needed to do things in a certain order, so I had to undo it and then do it again. There's an order to things. You can't just, just go in and say like, well, you know what? Let's just, you know, let's just start here. It's as good as any other place. He's also learning about the risk. He's probably looking, knowing he has these opponents. And knowing that, you know, I have to do this in a certain order, and there's a certain place we need to secure. Counting the cost, that's not a, not a new thing. We read this in other places in the Old Testament. We even you know, hear Jesus talking about that. You want to follow me? Count the cost. But keep this in mind. Counting the cost is not so that you can decide whether to do what God wants or not. Whether you do what God wants or not, you do it because God is calling you and He wants you to do it regardless of the cost. The cost doesn't matter once God says do it. Why not? Well, different reasons. Some of them you want to hear and some you don't want to hear. Some of the reasons is because God is going to provide for you to accomplish His will in miraculous ways that you cannot anticipate. You cannot anticipate that you know, God's going to bring all these resources in, into your life. You, you, if you waited for that, you would never do it. That's the good reason. That's the good reason that God is going to provide 
and we do this because of faith. The other reason we don't like to think about, the other reason is because God doesn't want you to finish the job. He might just want you to carry it for a little while. He might want you to just get it started. But he doesn't want you to finish. And we don't like that reason. Because when we don't finish something, we feel as though we've failed. But I think it's always important to, to, to keep in mind, what has God called you to do? When we think about evangelism, God calls us to evangelize. Does he call you to convert people? No, he doesn't. If you think you can convert people, then your name is Holy S. Spirit. Only the Spirit can do that. If you're the Holy Spirit, fine, convert people. All you can do is share. All you can do is proclaim. You can pray. You can be an example. But you can't convert one single person. In fact, if you convert somebody, then they are the disciples of you, not the disciples of Jesus. God doesn't want us to just evangelize with the guarantee that whoever I share with is going to receive the gospel, become a Christian. No. We do it because he says, do it. We do it because it's his call. And we don't always get to finish the job. So, Nehemiah here, he's, he's counting the cost. And you say, then why do you count the cost then? Why not just forge ahead? You count the cost for the same thing that Nehemiah's been doing so you can get ready. So that you can plan. You don't count the cost to decide whether to follow God. You count the cost to get as ready as you can, and then you go. Then you do. Well, after he does this assessment, he goes and he says, he says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem. What does Nehemiah do here? 
He's the cupbearer to the king. He risks everything, but he prays and he fasts and he prepares. Then he comes and he does his assessment, but then he enlists the help of others. If you're going to prepare to help, if you're going to prepare to do what God has, has called you to do, you find others who will help you. You cannot do God's work by yourself. There's so many Christians that, that have this mentality that they feel called to a ministry and they're like, just, okay, just leave me alone, let me do it. It's like, no. That is nowhere in the spirit of what the Bible talks about doing God's will. It is not one person forging ahead of everyone else. It's doing things together. We, we are resurrecting this, uh, this paper that we kind of had, that we used to have in the foyer, we used to have in the pews, and we're, we're resurrecting it because um, we kind of died during the pandemic. And it, it has, it lists all of our Bible studies and it lists, you know, all of the groups that meet, but it also lists all of the places where you can serve in the church. But the key word on both of those things is that we do it together. We study God's word together. We serve together. We don't just do it by ourselves. Oh, there may be that exceptional one time, very rare time when, when you know, only you. But really, the way that God works is that he wants to work through his people. You see, God can do everything himself, but even he doesn't. God doesn't say, sit back and watch me work. So why should we? Why should we be the person who says, everybody just sit back and watch me work? God, who doesn't need our help, wants us to help. That should be enough for us to realize there is nothing that we do for God that we should do on our own. I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's not always easier. I, I, I think it's harder for God to work through us than for him to do stuff on his own. You know, I think it actually proves how awesome God is that he can use knuckleheads like us to do anything worthwhile. Again, if I've used this example before, but, but if, if, you're, if you're trying to bake a cake and you decide, hey, I want to bake a cake and I want my kids and my grandkids to help. They don't actually help most of the time until they get older. They actually make it harder and messier. And they're over there sticking their finger in stuff and eating it before they should. You know, they have to crack six eggs to get three that actually go in the bowl. It seems like a waste and so many terrible things, but you want them to help. And I think God is that way with us. He can do it so much easier on his own. 
But he sees the value in the, when, when we help. We need to do that for each other. Because honestly, most of the time, we really do need each other's help. But there's some times when maybe you could do it all yourself. But it doesn't mean you should. We do things together. I love, again, this picture Nehemiah gives us. And I think it can help us so much as we come back together. People will start to join us as, and, and join the people who've already been here. That it is the spirit of unity and the spirit of doing God's will together, studying His Word together, that will hold us together and will get us ready for whatever He has for us. 